Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Pastor Tom. I'm the assistant pastor here. And now last time I had the chance to do a sermon, I had the privilege to talk to you about how God builds his church out of us. You know, these living stones on top of a sure foundation of obedience. And I started by sharing this little goofy story about comparing this really unstable handyman project that I did, this ridiculous little clapboard shelf that I slapped together, with the eternally secure building that God is building, his church. You know, something that will stand forever, that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Well, that, that cheat build that I talked about, it's a shelf I built 17 years ago from clapboard that I grabbed from the discount bin at Home Depot. Um, I think I told you the cat brushed against it and it fell over, and I didn't really remember what happened to it, but I was cleaning out my garage a couple of weeks ago, getting ready for the bulk pickup day, um, and there it was in all its glory. Now, I've got a picture of it, as you can see. I mean, isn't that a piece of work? Isn't that something special? Now, I don't know how your um, your town does the bulk garbage pickup day, but in, in my town, everybody puts all their trash, all the, the things that are too big to fit in bags, they throw it out on the curb. And I, I got to tell you, in Fairfield, it looks like the whole town is doing a yard sale. I mean, people go out in their pickup trucks, and they just load their trucks with all kinds of, well, garbage. I mean, people have taken stuff from my house, like old rugs, um, broken vacuum cleaners, this plastic kiddie pool that was cracked in half. I have no idea what they're going to do with it. But hey, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And so I was watching with bated breath to see if anybody would pick up my treasure. Three days passed and there it was. I mean, people picked around it and it was still sitting there. So, well, you can add master craftsman to my resume along with pro fisherman too. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ben. <laughs> but, um, so my pride was wounded. Uh, <laughs> so like I said, last time I talked to you, we talked about how God builds a stable, secure building, his church. And today I'm going to talk about another way, another aspect of how God builds up his church. He told us, he tells us that as we add new disciples, that we are to baptize them. Now, Jesus gives a command for the church to baptize in Matthew 28:18, where it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now we as a church, we know that we should obey everything that Jesus says to do without having to ask why or without having to have an explanation. But in this verse, Jesus gives us a special reminder, well, really two special reminders that underscore the importance of this command to make disciples. Jesus reminds us of two, his, uh, two of his divine attributes. The first is when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means he is sovereign. He is the absolute ruler. And he encourages us that he, the king of the universe, is going to use all the power at his disposal to support us in the mission that he's giving us. You know, therefore, we can obey him without fear because he is in complete control. Now, I also think that he's giving us a bit of a warning here as well. I mean, he is the ultimate authority and he is giving us an order. You know, we can ignore that order, but only at our own peril. Now, the second divine attribute that Jesus reminds us of is his omnipresence. Jesus is God the Son. Because of his divine nature, he possesses all of God the Father's attributes, including omnipresence, which means he is present. He is with us everywhere and everywhere. 
So Jesus, the one with all power, who is in all places at all times, he is here to assist us as we do his will, as we perform the act of making disciples, which is called the Great Commission. So within that context, within that understanding of who Jesus is and what he's told us to do, let's look at these four things, the four do words that Jesus tells us to do. There's four action words in Matthew 28. If you could put that back up on the screen, please. So one is to go. Another is to baptize. Another is to teach. And the central command of this verse, the thing that our going, our baptizing, and our teaching all accomplishes is the making of disciples. Now, because of these words of Jesus here in this verse, now baptism is forever linked to being a disciple and to making disciples. So there's a lot to be said about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. So let's take a deeper look to find out what we are being baptized into. So the standard, the worldly definition of disciple, it means someone who follows the teaching and takes up the ways of another. You know, but that's a very limited definition of what it is because as a Christ follower, we're following someone who is way more than just a teacher. And if we're following somebody who is more than a teacher, then that means that we are more than just students. So one of those aspects of being a disciple that's different from a worldly disciple is that we are worshipers. Now, because Jesus is God, we also worship our teacher. The word worship, it means to declare worth. But the kind of declaration of worth that God desires isn't just lip service. We're not just to talk about his glory. We begin to reflect his glory as well. Now listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now as the Spirit, as he applies Christ's salvation to us, we are transformed more and more into that image. And so we reflect the glory of God back to him, and we also reflect it to the world that's around us. And as we surrender ourselves to him more and more, we look more and more like him. So that's the kind of surrender, that laying down of ourselves that the Lord is looking for. It's the ultimate declaration of worth. But you and I, we all know that there is something in us, something that says, I'm on the throne of my life, not the Lord. You know, something that strives to remain in charge. But when we vacate the thrones of our you know, the, the little thrones of self and the little thrones of our hearts and we let the Lord in, you know, that is so much more than what a student does for his teacher. So it says in Romans 12, 1, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So real worship True worship is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And that's a key part of what being a disciple is. So another way that a Christ follower is more than a typical student is by being a servant. Now that goes hand in hand with the laying down of ourselves in worship. And when Jesus, when he washes his disciples' feet in John thirteen fourteen, he tells us, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, and that you should also do just as I have done to you. Now, this is the kind of radical service that Jesus is directing us to. Now, here is the eternally existent one, the one 
all things were created for, through whom all things were created. And what's he doing? He is washing dirty feet. He calls us to that kind of humility as well. You know, we are all, we're all given to pride. We want to be served. But the antidote for pride is humble service. And Jesus tells us to serve in the same way that he did. Now, aside from Jesus humbly washing feet, Paul reminds us of of another example of Jesus in Philippians 2. When he says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of the servants, being born in the likeness of men. So that phrase there, being born in the likeness of men, he looked like us so that we could begin to look like him. Now, a third way that Jesus' disciples were different from a worldly disciple is that we are to be witnesses. We are sent just like our Lord Jesus is sent. Now, in John seventeen eighteen, as Jesus is praying to God the Father, he says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them, meaning us, his disciples, into the world. So what did God the Father send Jesus into the world to do in the first place? Well, 1 Timothy 1.15 answers that. It says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So now consider these two verses about being sent on a mission laid along one side and one uh, laid alongside each other. Now, God, the father, he sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. And as the father sent Jesus in the world, Jesus sends us as well. So we share in the mission of saving sinners. Now, of course, we can't save in the same way that Jesus does. We can't atone for anybody's sins before God, the way Jesus does. So our mission isn't really exactly the same, but we partner in the mission of saving sinners because we bear witness to the one who does. So considering all that, to be a disciple of Jesus means much more than being a student or even just a follower of Jesus. It means to reflect the glory of God in our worship, to serve humbly like he served, and to bear witness so that others will come to worship him as well. So now getting back to the uh, the Great Commission verse, you know, right alongside the incredibly daunting, huge uh, labor-intensive work of making disciples, we see a small addition. You know, one of those action words in the Great Commission verse. It's baptize. All right, so let's dig into the details of what baptism is. Uh, baptism, the Greek, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse or to dunk. You know, baptizo was a word to describe dyeing a garment. You know, you'd take a fabric and you would immerse it into liquid, into this dye, and the dye would penetrate every last fiber. And the word baptizo was also used to describe a sinking ship. It's just filling, it's drenched, it's immersed in water. So total immersion, that's the imagery that most naturally represents what the word baptism means. And when we look at baptisms that are described in the New Testament, it's easy to see they were performed by immersion, by dunking. In Mark, Mark uh, 1, five, it says that people were confessing their sins and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. You know, not beside the river, not near the river. And after Jesus was baptized in Mark 1.10, it says he came up out of the water. And when John was baptizing others at Anon near Salem, it was because there was a lot of water there. So every time the Bible mentions the details of how baptisms were performed, there's a good deal of water present. Now, there are no other details offered in the Bible about how baptisms were performed, so we do it by immersion. Now, 
please keep in mind, I'm not seeking to, uh, to disrespect any other church traditions who practice baptism by sprinkling and not immersion. You know, I was baptized um, in the Roman Catholic Church in that tradition by sprinkling. Um, but biblically, we, we don't see any reason why we would do anything other than immersing. But having said that, it's important to realize that immersion, that baptism, it's only a symbol of the inner spiritual change that has occurred. So the spiritual birth is what is really important here. The symbol is not more important than the inner reality that it represents. And we practice baptism by immersion as a symbol because it best paints the picture of death, burial, and the resurrection. That is the key to understanding baptism. It represents our identification with the burial, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In a faith church, and I like to say most, but not all Protestant churches, we practice what we call believer's baptism, meaning that we only baptize people who believe. Now, some of you would probably say, well, duh. I mean, why would we baptize somebody who doesn't believe? Or why would anybody who doesn't believe want to be baptized in the first place? But, well, what about infant baptism? You know, it may surprise you to hear that there are actually some well-thought-out reasons for the practice of infant baptism, even within the Protestant church. Now, some of you may be familiar with the teaching of Dr. R.C. Sproul. You know, many, myself included, would count R.C. on the same level of teaching as somebody like John MacArthur or John Piper, you know, one of the modern giants of the faith. And R.C., he was a supporter of infant baptism. So because great thinkers like him and probably about half the professing Christian world practice infant baptism, we should take a few minutes to talk about why. Now, the argument for infant baptism, it's closely linked to the old, the old covenant practice of circumcision. Now, the idea is essentially that the visible sign of a new covenant disciple, which is baptism, replaces the sign of an old covenant of the Jewish people, which is circumcision. Now, in some ways, that's accurate, but we have to be careful to put the dividing line between the old covenant sign and the new covenant sign in its proper place. The purpose of the old covenant was for God to establish the descendants of Abraham as a physical nation of God's chosen people. And it sounds odd to say it today, but circumcision was the sign that he chose to set those people apart. Now, listen to Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my commandments, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God goes on to say that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenants. So uh, circumcision is a covenant sign. So the argument for infant baptism is essentially that because infants um, were circumcised before they had faith, then infants can be baptized before they have faith. But the thing that makes circumcision different from the sign of baptism is that circumcision marked out members of the physical nation of Israel. Circumcision was a display of national identity. And on the other hand, baptism is a display of spiritual identity. Now, there are plenty of instances in the Bible where people were circumcised without faith, but there are no instances in the Bible where people are baptized without faith. 
circumcision, national identifier, baptism, spiritual identifier. So it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges. One does not replace the other. Now, to be fair, for those who would argue for infant baptism, I should also mention some occurrences of what are called household baptisms that we find in the New Testament. Now, there are five examples of household baptisms that occur. If we had time, I'd read each occurrence, but we don't, so I'm going to have to give you a summary. And if you want to check this out for yourself afterwards, you can find them all in the book of Acts. And now the real question when it comes to household baptisms is, was the whole household baptized because they all came to believe? Or is the whole household baptized just because one of the leaders of the household came to believe and then they baptized the entire house? So in Acts 10, or Cornelius' household is baptized, it says, after they all hear the word, receive the spirit and speak in tongues. So it's implied that they all believed. Uh, with Crispus in Acts 18.8, it says, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So the whole household believed. In the case of the Philippian jailer's household in Acts 16, the entire household is invited to believe. They all have the word of the Lord spoken to them. They rejoice that salvation has come. And so here again, they all believed, so they were all baptized. And in 1 Corinthians, after Paul mentions that he baptized the household of Stephanus, he later commands the Corinthians to be subject to them because the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. So they were converts. They believed. So in these four cases of household baptisms, the text makes it pretty clear that the entire household believed. But remember, I said there was five instances. Now, there's one that raises some questions. It's the household of Lydia. Now, there's always got to be one. Why you got to be like that, Lydia? Now, it says in Acts 16:14 that the one who hurt us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Ty- Thyatira. Sorry, I might have gotten that wrong a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you would judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So as you can see, it doesn't really say one way or the other, whether Lydia's household believed or if they were just baptized because she was. It doesn't mention whether infants or children in the house. We just don't have any way of knowing. Now, but considering all the other instances in the Bible, that pattern of establishing faith before baptism, in the absence of details in one case, we let the details we do have in the other cases inform our interpretation of the verse. Now, that's a great principle for you to take with you um, during scripture and scripture reading. If there's something you don't understand, because of a lack of details, consider the the rest of the letter that you're reading and other parts of scripture that relate to what you're talking about. Use the details that are there to fill out your understanding of the missing details in the passage that you are reading. So it would go against precedent set by other scripture to take the lack of the details at Lydia's house to say that they were baptized without believing because it doesn't say one way or the other. So all that is to say at faith, we practice believers baptism because there's no other clear example of any other mode of baptism in the Bible. Now, another thing worth mentioning is that while baptism is closely linked to repentance, believers baptism, it's not a rededication ceremony for those who have fallen away and want to recommit. Now, I'd certain, certainly encourage anybody who has fallen away to recommit. Everybody needs to have a consistent posture of repentance before the Lord. But that's not what believer's baptism is. 
Now remember I said believer's baptism. It's a symbol that represents our identity, our identification with the burial, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now repentance is certainly part of that, but we don't rebaptize people who just want to repent. Now having said that, there is reason for people to believe that baptism could be used for rededication. You know, let's look back to the baptisms that John the Baptist performed. In Acts 19.4 it says, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So John's baptisms, they were baptisms of repentance that prepared the way for the Savior. John prepared the way for Christ by calling people to acknowledge their sin and their need for salvation. His baptism was a purification ceremony meant to ready the people's hearts to receive their Savior. Now, John's baptism, this purification ceremony, it looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now, on the other hand, believer's baptism, it looks back on the finished work of Christ on the cross, and it paints a picture of our identification with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So these are two different baptisms we see. Now, the baptism of John, it was important to the Jews at that time, but now it is superseded by the covenant sign of identifying with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, I'm sorry to take such a long detour there, but that since there are so many conflicting practices about how baptism is practiced in the church, I needed to clarify what the Bible says. All right, now getting back to the point. Now, as we saw in Matthew 28, baptizing, it's part of the work of the Great Commission. But, you know, honestly, compared to making disciples, that hugely daunting work, baptism is the easy part. You know, if I can make an analogy here, in the work of making disciples, it's almost like Jesus is telling us to go climb Mount Everest. It's a lot of work. And in the work of in the work of baptizing, it's like Jesus is telling us, hey, just draw a picture of the mountain. Now that analogy works because baptism, it truly is a picture of what is happening in discipleship. But baptism, it goes deeper. It points to a deeper reality than what we talked about, about being a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to die and to be born again. Now, that's what going under the water and coming up out, that's what that portrays. Now, let's read Romans 6, 3 through, 3 through 4. Now, Paul says, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, becoming a disciple of Jesus, it means dying to your old way of life and walking in newness of life with Christ. Now, I heard a story about a missionary. He was in Africa, and he was part of a small baptismal service there. You know, a few friends and family members, they were gathered with the missionary to watch from the shore. And another missionary was in the, was in the river doing the baptizing. So he raised his hand. He read from that uh, scripture that we just read in Romans and he baptized. And when the first convert came out of the water, he looked around and he was shocked and he was just shouting joyfully. The second convert did the same. You know, the third convert went down in the water and came up shouting for joy. He was just freaking out. And afterward, the missionary said, he's like, what was, what was the deal with all the shouting? And the baptizer answered, I haven't been able to completely communicate in this tribe's language. They heard the scripture I gave them, but they didn't understand the symbolic nature of it. When I told them they would be buried with him through baptism into death and raised 
to walk in newness of life, they actually thought that baptism was going to kill them. Now, the missionary on the shore, they chuckled a little bit, but then the baptizer said, hey, let me ask you a question. If you really thought baptism would kill you, would you get in the water? Now, these believers, now they were willing to pay with their lives to obey Christ's command to be baptized. And as they trusted Jesus' promise to raise them up from the dead as well. And when we baptize here at Faith, you know, nobody's going to die, you know, unless I drop the mic in the water with us. Uh, I don't know. But <clears throat> but when we're baptized, we do have to pay a cost in one sense. You know, in, in ancient culture, when somebody made a profession of faith through baptism, it was a huge deal. You know, they had a very limited community, their household and their extended family. You know, they probably lived on the same land, maybe even in the same house. So exile and exclusion was a very real and very possible relational cost of being baptized. So now, even though our relational community today, it's not so tight lit, your faith may cost you. You know, it could cost you with your family. It could cost you with your spouse, with your friends. It could cost you at work. But as we deal from the fallout of our profession of faith, we can take heart because remember Jesus the one who has all authority, the one who is with us at the end of the age, he uses our trials for the refining of our faith. And also consider the promise of blessing that Jesus gives in Matthew 5.11. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here we see that there was there there was a cost in professing your faith, but it is mingled with a heavenly reward that far outweighs what we have to pay. But then again, on the other side of the coin, God can use your relationships. He can use that intimate closeness to spotlight a change, to spotlight a transformation that has occurred in your life. Now, that's a big part of the reason for these household baptisms that I talked about. You know, the change was front and center. And those that were closest to the convert, they saw it and they said, I want that. I want that for myself. So he can use you to point others to him for that same rebirth and that same transformation that he has worked in your life. So now t take a moment to think about what your faith profession means to you. What does it cost you? Are you willing to pay that cost? Do you have the faith needed to obey and to be baptized? But before I move on, I need to warn you, there is no such thing as a private faith in Scripture. You know, another part of baptism, the symbolic part of baptism, is the calling out of the believer from the world visibly and joining the kingdom of God. He or she must step forward. You can't hold back. You've got to physically, visibly cross that line over to Team Jesus. Now, if you don't, if you won't do that, Jesus gives a warning. In Mark 8:38, it says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to meet Jesus and have him be ashamed of us because we were ashamed of him. Now, if we care more about what people think than what about our Lord thinks, then there's a problem. But, you know, Jesus knows it's not easy you know, he's gracious to help us along in the proclaiming of our faith. You know, within the practice of baptism, we have some built-in help here. You know, when you're baptized, you're among believers. So there's an encouragement from not being alone. You know, you have an easy invite to friends and family 
to non-believers. You can say, it's as simple as saying, hey, I'm getting baptized. I'd love for you to be a part of that. Would you come out and would you join us? You know, that's an easy way to share your faith. And as you share your testimony before them, as you share what happened when God pulled you out of the darkness and into the light, you share the gospel, the good news that is for all humanity. You are a witness. You are a disciple. You are taking part in that Mount Everest climb. You're doing the work of the Great Commission simply by being baptized and sharing your testimony. Now, you don't have to have the answer to every single question. You don't have to be able to explain every aspect of salvation. You know, baptism is the first step in a believer's life after repentance and conversion. So it's expected that new believers aren't going to have all the answers. New believers aren't going to have a fully developed theology. God expects that. He doesn't need you to understand everything before you take the next step of faith. But that's what faith is about. You know, if you understood everything, there would be no need for faith in the first place. But God wants you to believe that your story, your story along with all the others, will paint a picture not only of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, but also through your testimony, it paints a picture of the God who steps into individual lives in an intimate, personal way and transforms lives and saves them. Now, I heard a story about a, a famous radio broadcaster. Now, even though he had reached the pinnacle of his craft, he was still empty inside. He believed in Jesus, but he had never gone forward to be baptized. And as he heard a sermon one day on baptism, he decided he was going to step forward. He was going to do this. Now, he went forward to be baptized, and even though, like I said, he was already a believer, and even though he understood that there was nothing magical in the water, that day he underwent a massive change in his life that continued all throughout the rest of his life. So listen to what he said about his experience. He said, because baptism is such a public act, and because one's dignity gets drenched as well as one's body, I discovered a new unself-consciousness in talking about my belief. He said he had clearly stepped over the line. He had told all present that I belong to Jesus. And he said afterwards, there was no longer any uncertainty. There was no more contradictions in his mind about where he stood. There was no going back. You know, he belonged to Jesus and now everybody knew it. And that freed him up to talk about his faith. Now, as for that broadcaster's name, it's none other than Paul Harvey. And now, you know, the rest of the story. Anyone under 35 is like, what? I don't get it. <laughs> but our story, our story is for God's glory. The first step in being a witness and sharing our story is to publicly identify as his. And when you do this, he's going to put people within your earshot that need to hear your testimony. You know, it could be a simple story. It could be a dramatic story. All testimonies are valuable whether you think it or not, because you never know what kind of story is going to connect with somebody. You never know what people are going to relate to. You know, whether it's an entertaining story or not is entirely beside the point. It doesn't even enter into the equation because everybody needs saving. You know, whether you grew up in the church and the worst thing you ever did was steal your brother's bubble gum when you were five years old or, or whether you were a murderer, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody needs saving. And whether your story of salvation is dramatic or not, God is going to use your unique story to draw people unto himself for that same salvation. So for those of us who have hearts that just break for unbelievers and want to share their good news through their testimony, I have an excerpt from an old hymn that I'd like to share with you. You can make it your prayer. 
It says, lead me to some soul today. Teach me, Lord, just what to say. Friends of mine are lost in sin and cannot find their way. Now, August 15th, it's our baptismal service. We are going to be out on the front lawn. We are going to make this as public as possible. We're going to have some people sharing their testimonies live, and we're going to have some people pre-recording their testimonies, and we'll share them Sunday morning in the weeks leading up to the baptismal baptisms. So even if you've already been baptized as a believer, you're still welcome to share your story. You know, we're not going to re-baptize you, but if you've already, if you, we're not going to re-baptize you if you've already been baptized as a believer, but we would love to hear your story and add that to the service. Now, if you've been baptized as an infant or if you've been baptized before belief, I'm not going to tell you to be baptized again. I'm going to tell you to be baptized for the first time because baptism without belief isn't a baptism. It's just simply a bath. Now, let's refer back to math. I didn't mean that as a joke. It was supposed to be dramatic, but hey, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> so let's refer back to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. It says, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We invoke the Trinity because our conversion, our salvation, it's a gift from God the Father, purchased by God the Son, and it's applied to our lives by God the Holy Spirit. So it's appropriate that the Trinity is called out, is invited during our act of dramatizing the salvation that God has provided. So think about this. I mean, even if your family, even if your friends, they're not going to attend your baptism, the Trinity is there to witness it. The Trinity comes out to Faith Church on KMD in Waterville to witness this portraying of the work that they have done in your life, in the life of the disciple. And when you become a disciple of Jesus, you begin to relate to the Trinity in a different way. The Father, he becomes your heavenly Father. The Son, he is your Lord. The Spirit is your indwelling enabler. And in the act of baptism, we submit to, um, we submit ourselves to all three. We pledge allegiance to all three. It's a special thing. You know, when Jesus was baptized by John, we see all three of the members of the Trinity present. Listen to Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in this verse, you know, we see the, the Trinity fully represented here at the baptism of Jesus. God the Son being baptized, God the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and God the Father declaring his pleasure over the whole deal. Now, Jesus, he didn't need to be baptized by John. Like I said, John's baptism, it was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus had nothing that he needed to repent from. John even argued with Jesus in Matthew 3.14, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus said, let it be so now. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness in this way. You know, and then John permitted him. Jesus does not do it to repent. He is sinless, but he does it to fulfill all righteousness. He knows that the people watching, he knows they need repentance. So he does it to identify with us sinners. You know, Warren Wearsby, he tells us that Jesus' baptism pictures his future baptism on the cross when the waves and billows of God's judgment would go over him. We as sinners, we deserve that judgment that washes over Jesus. But he went under the water for us. 
And just like Jesus rose up out of the water, he rose from the grave. And when we rise up out of the waters of baptism, we identify with our Lord's resurrection. Death had no claim on him because he took our sins away. Death has no claim on us. So as we get ready to wrap up this morning, if you've not been baptized as a believer, don't put it off any longer. Sign up at the welcome desk today. You know, the way we do baptisms at faith, it takes some planning, it takes some discussions, so we're not going to be doing last-minute baptisms. Sign up today, and we'll walk you through the process of getting baptized. But just to warn you, the devil, he hates it when we respond in obedience to Christ's call. He hates public declarations of faith, and when you walk out of here today, he's going to do everything he can to distract, disrupt, discourage you from following Jesus' call. Now, as you start thinking about everyday demands of life, whether it's you know making lunch, going to the grocery store, picking up the kids, going to work tomorrow, that call you heard to obey today, it's going to start to seem like it was some kind of weird fantasy, like it just evaporates when you get back to real life. But let me remind you, the spiritual call of the Lord is so much more real than anything in the physical world. Psalm 119 tells us that your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. The word of the Lord is eternal. It's the true reality. And the call to obey it, it goes beyond all the petty distractions and disruptions that the world, our flesh, and the devil throw up at us in opposition to our obedience of the Lord. So be prepared for that. And remember, Jesus, the one with all authority over heaven and earth, is with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I ask that you would help us to be disciples that are pleasing to you, Lord. Not just students, but also worshipers, servants, witnesses, Lord. God, grant us courage and protection as we go about the work of making disciples and as we go about the work of being discipled as well. God, we ask this so that we can build up a church that glorifies you in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, and all throughout the earth. God, give us the faith needed to obey your call today. God, we ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen.